<clears throat> Let me move now to our sermon material for this morning. Uh, I'm excited about these next five weeks. I really am. Uh, we're going to take this Lent season leading up to Easter, the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, and we're going to talk about the last words of Jesus on the cross before his death. So those phrases that the gospel writers tell us about are loaded with implications, so relevant to our life today. They're explosive as you peel back the layers, just incredible words that Jesus gives us on the cross. So, so we're going to talk through uh, some of those. Today's phrase, um, if you have ever been at a place in your life where you've thought, where are you, God? <clears throat> Why have you abandoned me? Why have you left me? Why have you turned your back on me? Is God even interested? Is God just done? Is there any hope for humanity? If you've ever been at that place, and I hope all, I, all of us have been there, if you haven't, good for you. You're too perfect for this church. Go find a more perfect church. Um, don't ruin our imperfect vibe. So um, there's this, obviously, this situation that unfolds on the cross, just the low point of human history, where God in the flesh, the Messiah, the Savior, is strung up on the cross, wrists pierced, feet pierced, his own humanity that he came for has turned against him. The Roman guard has squashed a potential messianic rebellion. The religious leaders of the day hated his message of religious freedom and love for God and others and the approachability of God, and so they squashed it. It looks like it's just humanity's lost. If you were a follower of Jesus, you lost. You backed the wrong horse. If you are... Uh, an Israelite, you lost because Rome squashed your Messiah again. Everything looked to be lost. And then Jesus speaks this phrase. And I think when we peel back the layers, what we're going to see is this incredible phrase that's almost like, and, I, and this is, doesn't fitting the situation, but it's almost like a wink. It's almost like Jesus says, oh, I know something you don't know. So we're going to see where, and then, and then there's so, so many implications for all of us going through those moments where we wonder where God is and whether God is still interested and how could God possibly be in these circumstances. So let me get rolling here. I'm going to read to you <clears throat> from Matthew 27 as Matthew uh, lays out the situation that leads up to this phrase from Jesus on the cross. So here we go. <clears throat> And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. So one of the details Matthew wants us to know is that Jesus essentially chooses dehydration over drinking and also numbing, like there's some numbing agent in there. And, and you think about what it would be like to be a prisoner for 24 hours, drug all over the place, you're in a dungeon, you've been whipped, you've been beaten, no, no doubt just sweat pouring out of your body from the adrenaline. And yet Jesus <clears throat> chooses this dehydration in the moment. When they crucified him, so now he's on the cross, his hands are pierced, his feet are pierced. They divided his garments 
among them by casting lots. That's an odd detail. Jesus is on the cross naked like all crucified men were. So he's naked on the cross, humiliated, and they are taking his remaining possessions and dividing it up among the Roman soldiers. They're casting lots. They're playing a little dice game or whatever to see who got his clothes. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him. They would put the charge that you were being crucified for. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. So he is being crucified for being King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, they're mocking his words. Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, he saved others and he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he really desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. So Matthew wants us to see this imagery of all the people wagging their heads. He says wagging their heads or shaking their heads. And while they're shaking their heads, they're saying, he trusted God. Let God save him if he really loves him. So I want you, like right now, maybe just, just shake your head because I want you to have this vision. And you're, he trusts in God. That's what's happening. That's one of the details that's happening. <laughs> and the robbers who were crucified with him... <clears throat> also reviled him in the same way. So you know it's bad when you got other people being crucified who are making fun of you. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and this is a horrible attempt at Aramaic, Eli, Eli, yama sabachthani. That is, my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I don't want to leave anybody in the dust here, newer to the Bible, so I want, to, I want you to see what Jesus did there when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So there's a few things you need to know. First of all, that whole King of the Jews thing, or King of Israel, that's referencing this idea of Jesus being the long-awaited Messiah. You should know this. That's referencing Jesus being the long-awaited Messiah. Now, this is an important backdrop to the whole New Testament and the whole culture around the time of Jesus. Israelite culture really began with the book of Exodus, where the Israelites were in slavery for over 400 years. So that's 10 generations. It's deep in their DNA. They are building the Egyptian pharaoh's empire. He's building it on the backs of the Israelite slaves, they are hopeless, they are helpless. Then God sends Moses. Moses was a, a, a Hebrew, he was an Israelite who was exiled. He sends him back. And through miracles in Moses' leadership, Moses leads the Israelites out through all these miracles that God did. Finally, Pharaoh sends them on their way, and they go on this exodus, this exiting out of their slavery. 
And they have this promise from God that he is their people and they are his God. And he leads them into the promised land. They journey into the promised land. Their own land. Their own identity. Now, it doesn't take them long for them to tank that through their unfaithfulness to God. They found themselves exiled. Far from their promise. Far from their land. Far from their chosen status. Eventually till they're in the time of Jesus when now Romans control their promised land. They're living there, but they have no influence. Their political influence, their, their, their global impact is laughable. But throughout the Old Testament... All right. Throughout the Old Testament... And through much of Jewish thinking of that day, this is like archaeologists affirm this, okay? It's provable. Throughout the Old Testament, they were given this promise of another Moses to come. And that Moses would give them another exodus. And there would be another promise, and essentially another promised land, another kingdom established. And in this kingdom, all people, Jews and Gentiles, would worship God together. It would be an eternal kingdom. So they were waiting for this Messiah, this second Moses, this king of Israel, to come. And so much of the New Testament, so much of the Gospels, was these Gospel writers trying to point readers to Jesus as this second Moses who would take them to this second exile leading them to a new promise and a new promised land. So let me give you a quick example. Uh, Moses' first miracle. Anybody know Moses' first miracle? Yell it out. He turned water into blood. Moses' first miracle. Water into blood. So that there was even water turned into blood in the pots in the cisterns of Egypt. Jesus' first miracle. Now, water into wine. So you see the way there's that connection there? And all through, we see this connection between this is Jesus, the new Moses, the new Exodus. It's here, the Messiah. But now there's this moment. Where this new Moses, this hope of Israel, the rebellion is over, right? The exodus is over, the crucifixion. It's this horrible moment. And then Jesus says, my God, why have you forsaken me? So why would Matthew, trying to present Jesus as the hero, trying to present Jesus as the new Moses... Why would he include this moment in his story when this hero of Israel says, God, why have you abandoned me? Well, there are a lot of theories, but I think if we peel the layers away, we're going to see something else going on here. Some amazing thing that Jesus is pointing to by saying that one line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So let's go back to Matthew 27 and review a few of these details. What are the soldiers doing? 
they're dividing his clothes. He's also being mocked. The religious leaders are wagging their heads. They're shaking their heads and saying, he trusts God. Let God save him if he really loves him. Those are some specific details. His hands are pierced on the cross. He's dehydrated. These are all details that Matthew's telling us before Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, one last thing to keep in mind. Every single Jew present at the cross and every single Jew who would have first heard Matthew's gospel would have had all the Psalms memorized. They had all the Psalms memorized. They recited them all the time. It was common rabbi and teacher practice in Jesus' day for a teacher to say one line of a scripture passage and the listener would then fill in the gap. He or she would fill in the gap because they had so much memorized. So Jesus does this all through his ministry in the Sermon on the Mount when he says like, um, you've heard it said, uh, love your neighbor or whatever, okay? That's not a direct quote. But he would quote these lines and then they knew the rest. So Jesus says in this horrible moment of defeat, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the context. Now, I'm going to walk you through Psalm 22. <laughs> Remembering that every Jew knew all the Psalms, and rabbis would quote one line, and their hearers would fill in the rest. So here is Psalm 22. Horrible moment on the cross. All is lost. Jesus says, Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus isn't saying, all things considered, God, why have you turned your back? He's quoting the 22nd Psalm. So now we have to bring the whole Psalm into this moment to understand what Jesus is doing here. <laughs> Psalm 22 goes on. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. So, so far, is this a hopeful psalm or is this a psalm of despair? It's a psalm of despair, right? Why have you, where are you? But it makes a quick turn. Next verse. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And in you they trusted and were not put to shame. So by Jesus calling this psalm to memory, what he's really saying, like this psalm, it says, it may look bad now, but God is still doing something. God is still to be trusted. Now let's think about those specific details. Now this psalm was written Hundreds of years before this moment when Jesus quotes it. There is no denying that. It is a historical fact. It's verifiable. This psalm was written hundreds of years before Jesus here at the cross. Look at verse 7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths. They wag their heads and say, He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. 
for he delights in him. See what Jesus did there? With precision, with precision, hundreds of years ago, Psalm 22 points to the lowest moment in human history where God's representatives here on earth, the priests, are mocking God on the cross. It calls out their exact words. It calls out their bodily gestures. Jesus sort of says, see, God knew this hundreds of years ago. Verse 15, my tongue sticks to my jaws. There's dehydration at the scene. Hundreds of years ago. Verse 16, they have pierced my hands and my feet. With precision, hundreds of years prior to this. The scriptures points to this moment of despair when there would be mocking, when there would be a piercing of hands and feet. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. With precision. Psalm 22 points to a moment of despair. Deep despair. When there would be clothes being divided up. By the casting of lots. So do you see what Jesus is doing here? In this moment of despair when all looks lost. Jesus drops a line from Psalm 22. And sort of says not so fast. It ain't over. It ain't over. God saw this moment hundreds of years ago with precision in its entirety. God saw this moment. This is a part of something greater that God is doing. Now I want to show you how Psalm 22 closes. This is one of my favorite sections in Scripture because it starts out saying, everything may look lost, but everything's headed somewhere. And by Jesus quoting that one verse, he's sort of saying, hey, everything may look lost. God saw you doing that hundreds of years ago. Don't think that somehow you're accomplishing something. God is way out ahead of you. And then we get to the end. Verse 22. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. So think about those moments in your life when you've said, where are you, God? And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard <clears throat> when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. <clears throat> All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, no matter what this moment looks like. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve the Lord. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That he has done. Do you see the language that he uses here? That new promised land? All people will come and worship with their king. Even there at the cross... 
Jesus is saying, this may look like one thing, but this is headed somewhere. This too is under the control of God. Now, three quick thoughts. First, there are going to be moments when you can see or feel God. Don't believe the words of the crowd. Don't believe the words in your own head. There are going to be moments in your life on this journey when you cannot see or feel God. Don't believe the words of the crowd. Don't believe the words in your head. It's all headed toward restoration. That's the message of Psalm 22. That's what Jesus speaks into that moment. Second, you should expect while we wait for the promised land that the journey there has some confusing moments. Trust the journey. This was a confusing moment at the cross. Nobody knew what was going on except Jesus who saw it. Quotes Psalm 22, says, see, this has been in motion. There's some confusing moments in this journey. Trust that it's headed somewhere. And then finally, I love this, rather than say, like there's mocking, there's beating, there's uncertainty, there's fear, rather than say, you'll get yours. Like Jesus could have looked at the Romans or or looked at the, the, the religious leaders and said, oh, you'll get yours. But rather than doing that, Jesus points to a moment A plan that involves the redemption of everything and everybody. In the midst of the mockery, Jesus points to his haters. And he points them to the restoration of all things. Jesus was actually dying for his accusers. This was the second exodus. Jesus was paying the death penalty even for his accusers, even for his crucifiers. He was paying their death penalty to lead them on an exodus out of the slavery of sin toward connection with God. This moment that looked like it was over was actually the beginning of the second exodus. It was actually the fulfillment of God's plan. When, like Jesus did on the cross, you trust God's hand in the process that you're going through right now, no matter how difficult. It's only when we can do that, no matter how things may look, no matter how bleak the situation may look, that you can trust that God is working to redeem and restore. Once you've arrived there, that God is good, that God is for you, that God does love you, That's when you can find joy in your life, no matter the circumstance. Believing that your circumstances are not evidence of God's involvement, no matter how bleak. But rather, trusting God's promises. Trusting His purpose in your circumstances. Jesus gives us that example. Now, being St. Patrick's Day, I'd like to close with some lines from his famous prayer. And in those darker moments, those where are you God moments, hopefully we can call on God's power and his redemptive purposes 
like Jesus did, like St. Patrick did, and like so many other children of God have done through the ages. St. Patrick would arise every day and pray this prayer. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity. I arise today through the strength of Christ's birth and his baptism, through the strength of his crucifixion and his burial, through the strength of his resurrection and his ascension. I arise today in the hope of resurrection to meet with reward, in the prayers of patriarchs, in the predictions of prophets, in the preaching of apostles, in the faith of confessors. I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to guard me, God's shield to protect me, God's host to save me from snares of devils, from temptation of vices, from everyone who shall wish me ill, near and afar, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my left, Christ on my right, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. May you leave today with all the assurance of the 22nd Psalm and complete faith in God's redemptive plan for your life, able to see Christ in every circumstance.